0: so we had to keep the fish inside.
1: And he pushed me off and I broke my collarbone. They heard strange noises in the night and one of them was scared.
2: Welcome to the Appleseed Studio. I'm Sam Payne, and the Appleseed is an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. Sometimes you just need the right words to talk about some of the biggest things you'd like to talk about, and we'll bring you tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal and family tales and more, all designed to share and to spark memories and thoughts that can lead to the family storytelling around your kitchen table or living room that can help build a family culture of rich conversation. We feel like that's kind of sacred work, if you want to know. And with any luck on the Appleseed, great stories can change your family's world. We're excited to bring you an hour of great stories today. As we looked at what today's stories had in common, we found this. They're about help coming in an unexpected or miraculous way. You're going to hear a true story told for you by Nebraska storyteller Pippa White about a girl in 1912 whose mother had kind of an unusual premonition about an ocean voyage aboard a famous ship, a premonition that for a while makes that mother something of a bother to her shipmates.
1: I will not be going to sleep at night on this ship. I am going to sit up during the night and I'm going to sleep during the day and there is nothing you can say that is going to make me change my mind
2: that's Pippa White. And you'll hear the whole story in just a moment. And you'll also hear a fictional story about miraculous help coming to English soldiers in the trenches of World War I. You won't want to miss that. And you'll also hear the story of a period in America, some of you will remember it, when help against crime came in the form of Tips for how neighbors could best help keep each other safe from criminal activity. Those tips were delivered on TV by a cartoon dog with a slogan. Take a bite out of crime. <laughs> McGruff the crime dog. And that's all this hour on The Apple Sea. And before we get to our first story, that story from Pippa White about the unusual premonition on an ocean voyage... There's a saying about stories that my wife sometimes uses. We talk a lot about stories, as you can imagine. And she sometimes says, every story says once upon a time something bad happened, but we worked to get through, and here's what we did. I like that way of looking at the folk tales and fairy tales and personal tales and history tales and family tales that we love. And it occurs to me that sometimes the story of what we did to get through includes the story of what help we had. I've got stories about getting through stuff in which I had help from my mom or from a friend or from one of my children or even from what feels like heaven itself. Think about some of those times in your own life in which you got through with some help in a world in which not every challenge you'll face will be one you can handle on your own. Stories of helpers can help us find and recognize and be grateful for the assistance that so often comes to us. What stories like that could you share with the people you love? Well, let's head into the Appleseed Performance Studio, where our terrific studio audience is waiting, along with Nebraska storyteller Pippa White and a tale about Eva and her family on an ocean voyage in 1912, an ocean voyage on a famous ship. In fact, maybe the most famous ship, this side of maybe Noah's Ark. Let's head in there, shall we?
1: And thank you all very, very much. It's uh, my great pleasure to be here. So you know that I like stories from history. I love this one because it certainly does have to do with a historical event, but uh, it's about something else too, which I think is equally important as the historical event that is shared. This is Eva's story, and I need to thank uh, Ronald C. Denny and Greenwich University Press for allowing me to share Eva's story with you. Eva was in her 90s, in the 1990s, when uh, she told her story to uh, Ronald C. Denny, and it got published. And this happened when she was a child. So we are going back in time quite a ways. We were emigrating to Canada My father had had some business difficulties, some losses and a new start in a new place seemed like just the answer to his problems. He had had a friend go out to Winnipeg, Manitoba and start a construction business and he'd been very successful. He wanted my father to come and partner. So all of this happened very quickly and we were all very excited. Everyone that is except for my mother. From the very beginning, she was apprehensive about it, frightened even. And even she didn't know why. And this was completely unlike her normal, down-to-earth, level-headed self. I remember my father saying to her, what is there to be frightened of? You're working yourself up into a state about this. What is there to be frightened of? And she would say, I don't know, I don't know. All I know is every time I think about it, I'm certain that it's the wrong thing to be doing. Despite her feelings, no one would listen to her. I remember my grandparents, her parents, saying to her, you're going to miss a wonderful opportunity if you don't do this. We can't understand what you're so hesitant, so unhappy about. My mother's apprehensions did nothing to deter my father from taking the necessary steps Towards emigration, He filled out all the paperwork, and then he booked us on a small ship called the Philadelphia, which was sailing to New York. This was part of the plan. My father had a married sister living in New York whom he hadn't seen in quite some time, so the idea was to visit with her and then take the train up, up into Canada. But due to a dock strike and a coal strike, the Philadelphia was unable to sail at its appointed time. This made my mother very happy. She thought it was a sign that we should just give up the whole thing. My father, on the other hand, began to pester the shipping company, saying, look here, this is not some uh, luxury vacation we're off on. My future depends on my getting across the ocean at a certain time. Well, he pestered them so much that they finally said, listen, there is nothing we can do to make this ship sail when it should, but we can do this for you. We can put you on another ship sailing close to that time. And that is how we got second-class tickets on the Titanic. And when my mother heard this, she said, well, now I know what it is. My father said, do tell, will you please? I'd like to know. She said, that is the ship they say is unsinkable. And that is flying in the face of the almighty. That ship will never make it to the other side. My mother did not hold her tongue about this and everyone thought her so foolish. They would say the Titanic is the most modern, best equipped ship in all the world. Everyone agreed though, that this was completely out of character for my mother. She was not superstitious. She was not given to flights of fancy. She wasn't even young. She was middle-aged, and this was completely unlike her normal, down to earth, no nonsense self. I think my mother was afraid that she was going to lose her happiness. My mother had had another marriage, what you would now call abusive, very abusive. But now she had my father, whom she loved very much. They had me, and I think she felt that whatever was coming at her was going to mean the end of that. She said she felt as if she had a black eagle sitting on her shoulder all those days before our departure. She kept begging my father to change his mind. And indeed, she was begging him to change his mind as we walked up the gangplank of the Titanic on April 10th, 1912. Once in our little cabin, though, my mother said, all right, the ship has sailed. Let us have no more arguments, no more unhappiness. But... You need to know one thing. I will not be going to sleep at night on this ship. I am going to sit up during the night and I'm going to sleep during the day and there is nothing you can say that is going to make me change my mind. My father said, oh, all right then, if you want to be ridiculous, I can't stop you. But what will the other passengers say? She said, I don't care what they say. I will not be going to sleep at night on this ship. And she didn't. So our days went something like this. We would breakfast together, and then my mother would go back to the cabin to sleep. And I got to spend the day with my father, and I just loved it. He was not the disciplinarian that she was. My father and I would lunch together Incidentally, he showed me all over that magnificent ship in the evenings. Uh, my mother would get up, they would bathe, they would bathe me, take me to supper, and then take me back to the cabin for bed, and then they would go to dinner the other passengers did notice that my mother was always absent at lunch and she didn't hesitate to tell them why. So they would twit her and tease her and say, did you learn anything in the night? Are you going to be taking care of us again tonight? Only Sunday, April 14th, my mother noticed a sign in the dining room, announcing that there was to be a church service at 11 o'clock. So she decided that she would not go straight back to the cabin to sleep, rather she would stay up for that church service. We all attended and then we had lunch together, not knowing of course that this would be the last meal we would share together as a family. At that meal, One of the officers saw my mother, came up and said to her, Ah, does this mean you've gotten over your fears? Do you believe that we can get you safely across the ocean now? She said, Oh, no, no. She looked him right in the eye, said, No, no, I am just here because I stayed up for the church service. I shall be going to sleep directly after this meal. Shook his head and said, Well, I'm sure everyone was very grateful to you. My father was not one to smoke or drink or gamble, so he usually retired very early. And he did that night of April 14th, 1912. My mother sat up, fully dressed, with her books and her sewing. She said at 11.45, she felt a bump. Just a bump. Now. It is important that you should know the strength of the collision with the iceberg, with that impact, was felt differently depending on where you were on the ship. It was a huge ship. Those who were close to the impact were thrown out of bed. If they were still up in the lounges, they fell to the floor. Those far from the impact felt nothing. My father and I slept right through it. My mother, of course, was not about to let us. She woke up my father, said something has happened, go and find out what it is. Then she woke me up, tried to start dressing me, and because I'd been disturbed from a sweet sleep, I was not making it easy for her. I remember my father pulling his trousers over his pajamas and grumbling and putting on his heavy sheepskin-lined coat, and out the door he went. I cannot tell you how long he was gone. In my childhood memory, it seems that it was... Really, only a few minutes. But when he returned, he was a changed man. He was pale, and there was so much tension in his face that he was almost unrecognizable, and I began to scream. He took off his heavy sheepskin-lined coat, put it over my mother's shoulder, said, here, you're going to need this. Then he went to the cupboard and got another overcoat for himself. They wrapped me in blankets and out the cabin we went. Halfway down the corridor, I said I wanted to go back for my teddy bear. They said we will never go back. Because my father had shown me all over that ship, he knew just what lift to take to get us to the boat deck. When we got up there, there was some rushing about, but there was no real panic. I clearly remember a sailor saying to a woman, we put you in those boats, you're going to be back here before breakfast. There are a number of controversies, of course, about the Titanic. One is, did the band play? I can tell you that the band did indeed play, but I'm telling you it was an enormous ship. Those close to the band would have heard the band, those far would not. It's also a controversy, did the band play Nearer My God to Thee? All I can tell you is that months later, I was in church with my grandparents and that hymn was played on the organ and I became hysterical without knowing why. We were near Fifth Officer Lowe when he fired the pistol and said, any man trying to get into any of these lifeboats before women and children will be shot on the spot. And no one doubted that he meant what he said. My father walked up to him and said, I'm not trying to get into a boat, but for God's sake, take my wife and child. He did. My mother and I stepped into an already crowded lifeboat. My father took my hand and said, now be a good girl, hold tight to your mummy's hand, and do everything she tells you. Those were the last words I ever heard from my father. Our boat was lowered and quickly rowed away to get away from the suction line of the ship. I shall not dwell on this part of the evening. I will tell you this though, another controversy has been, did the ship break in half? My mother and I clearly saw that it did. And of course, when it was found on the ocean floor in the 1980s, it was in two pieces. Once the ship had gone down, they gathered all the lifeboats together to redistribute the passengers. You may know that some of the early lifeboats left not completely full. This was not easy as only two of the lifeboats had lights, but there in the middle of a dark ocean, they did redistribute passengers to free up a boat to go back and look for survivors. Uh, In the process of that redistribution, my mother and I got separated. We never knew how that happened, but happen it did. I found myself in a lifeboat full of strangers, not knowing what had happened to my father, now not knowing where my mother was. And I'm afraid I did not add to the joy of the evening. I made things rather difficult. When the sun came up, and it came quite early, shortly after 4 a.m., we saw that we were surrounded by icebergs, some of them 300 feet high. And shortly after that, we saw the masthead of the Carpathia come to save us. This was another ordeal, however. They had a rope ladder for the adults, but uh, we children were, felt too young to climb the ladder, so they put us in big canvas bags, only our heads showing, and then they put us in rope nets, which they winched up the side of the ship, which, again, as I said, was quite an ordeal. We were well taken care of on the Carpathia, though my mother took all day to find me. We had doubled the population of that ship. It was a small ship and there were 700 survivors. So uh, it took all day for my mother to find me, but when we were unified, we were not to be separated again. We had frostbite, the ship's doctor took care of that. And I must tell you this, that ship, which was on its way to Europe, when it turned around to come back and help us, was full of Ellis Island immigrants that had not been accepted. They'd been turned away at Ellis Island. Those poor people, literally poor, shared with us their sweaters, their scarves, their socks, anything they could give us. We were also well-treated in New York, and of course, my mother and I had a visit with my father's sister. My mother then booked us on a small ship to go back to England, and on that ship, she slept at night. My mother was never asked to testify, but before we left New York, she did a little detective work on her own. She got a list of the survivors and a list of all the passengers in our section of the ship. We were the only two passengers from our section of the ship to survive. I'm telling you, we were far away from the impact. Everyone must have done what my father and I did and slept through that bump. By the time they were awakened by staff and stewards, they got up onto the deck. It was too late. All the boats were gone. We were the only two to survive from that section of the ship. My mother had never before had a premonition, and she never had another. And she could not tell you right up until the day she died why she was so certain, so convinced, so absolutely 100% sure that the Titanic was going to sink. Because of that conviction, my mother endured humiliation and ridicule, and because of that conviction, my mother was able to save my life. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Pippa White, with a story that makes the wreck of the Titanic come alive by focusing on just a few of the people who lived through that horrific experience. And you got some history tidbits, too, about the ship breaking in half and about the band playing the hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, as the ship went down. These historical legends that seem to bear themselves out in the true story of Eva and her family. In just a moment, I'll gather Brian and Heather around the desk for a chat about Pippa's story, and we'll bring you a World War I story, too. That's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. It was just our pleasure to listen to a story told by Pippa White in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Pippa White, the Nebraska storyteller, specializes in telling stories from history. And that story was a story about the adventure of a family on the Titanic. And uh, to unpack that story here around the desk a little bit with me, I've got our producers, Dr. Brian Tanner, Dr. Heather Bigley. Guys, great to have you with me. Hello. Great to be here. Uh, on dry land, right? Great to be here. <laughs> yes. Where, you know, hearing the story of an individual family on the Titanic, you know, kind of pulls some things into focus. I'm I'm kind of wondering where that story took you guys. Heather, where did that story take you?
3: This story for me is about uh, being true to what you know, even if you've never had knowledge like this before, right? And right. that keeps getting set up in the story is that Ava's mother has never had a premonition, and Ava's mother is not the kind of person to sort of um, countenance even these <laughs> kinds of uh, things, and yet she once she knows it, she is going to act on it, and she's going to act on it in a way um, that— interestingly, doesn't bother too many people. Like, she doesn't, like, disrupt anybody's, you know, life. She just says, okay, well, I'm going to stay up all night, and I'm going to be the one who watches over us. Yeah. And that is what saves her daughter's life. Right.
2: Brian, what about you? Well, and
4: just following that train of thought, what an incredible example for Eva— you know, all she's yeah. relaying this story in her 90s. Yeah. You know, so that example of her mother's courage in following this feeling that she has, even though she can't tell where it came from or why she's having it. Yeah, I'm sure that's something that helped her throughout her life to know I I should be able to trust the the feelings that I have, even
3: if right, <laughs>
2: right, yeah, a, a kind of precedent, right? Yeah. Our family was saved by a premonition that my mother had. leading to perhaps a taking seriously of some of those same kinds of feelings when Eva may have them throughout her life. Mm -hmm. For me, Eva's story is a story, at least in part, about help coming in an unexpected or miraculous way, right? Eva's mother's out-of-character superstition about the Titanic winds up making her the mockery of the other passengers on the ship, keeping her awake at night. And of course, in the end, Keeping Eva safe Saving Eva's life And because you never know What's going to spark a memory And you never know What memory it's going to spark Pippa's story Sparked a memory for me About a time when I felt Watched after Felt safe In kind of an unusual way It's today's entry In the Radio Family Journal
1: The Radio Family Journal With Sam Payne A tiny little story For you and your family Right when you need it On the Appleseed
2: When I was in the fifth grade, we had a special assembly in my elementary school. We all marched down to the cafeteria, which was also the gym, which was also the auditorium. Maybe that's just like your elementary school too, right? And we sat on the floor and Officer Leesburg, the chief of police in my little town, held up a sign for us all to see. And on the sign was a cartoon picture of a dog wearing a trench coat like he was an old style movie or TV detective, like Humphrey Bogart or Columbo. Officer Leesburg explained that the dog's name was McGruff and that he was a crime dog, whatever that was. And underneath the cartoon picture of the dog on the sign were the words McGruff House, printed in big letters, yellow letters. Officer Leesburg told us that we might start seeing signs just like the one he was holding in the windows of some of the houses of our neighbors. And he told us that if we ever felt like we were unsafe, if we were hurt or if we felt like someone was following us, anything at all, we could go to a house with one of these McGruff House signs in the window and ring the doorbell, and the people in that house would help us. They'd call our parents or the police. They'd let us stay in their homes until help came. I had no idea the road McGruff the Crime Dog had taken to get to my elementary school. I know a little more now. The story goes back really to the 1960s. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X., President John F. Kennedy, Senator Robert Kennedy, they were all assassinated in that decade. Crime was on the rise, and that rise in crime was on the minds of everyone in America. President Lyndon Johnson established government organizations designed to get to the bottom of why crime in America just kept rising. But it was really tough going. During Nixon's presidency and then Ford's and then Carter's, crime continued to rise. Anyway, they went to the Ad Council. That's the organization in charge of public campaigns starring characters like Smokey Bear and Woodsy Owl. If you've ever heard phrases like, only you can prevent forest fires, or give a hoot, don't pollute, you know the work of the Ad Council. Anyway, the Ad Council gave the project to an advertising agency called Dancer Fitzgerald Sample, and its creative director, Jack The advertising guys wondered what would happen if they made ads that showed Americans that regular folks like you and me could do a lot to keep each other safe from crime just by using a little of their personal energy to reach out and take care of each other. The advertising guys created this cartoon crime prevention dog and had a national contest to name the dog. It was a police officer in New Orleans named John Isbell who won the contest with the name McGruff the Crime Dog. And this dog, McGruff, in kind of a gravelly voice, wearing his old school detective trench coat, would talk on these TV ads. It was really the voice of Jack Keel who created McGruff. And McGruff would teach people how to do simple stuff like lock their doors when they weren't home or keep their porch light on at night or form neighborhood watch groups or tell a trusted neighbor when you were going to be away from home so they could keep an eye out for suspicious activity at your house and report it. And the commercials all ended with McGruff the Crime Dog repeating his slogan, which everyone in America knew. Let's take a bite out of crime, he'd say. People love McGruff. He was given hundreds of millions of dollars in free advertising space on TV stations around the country. This was the 80s, way before people had access to the Internet. And in those days, the TV commercials invited you to write a letter to a P.O. box in Rockville, Maryland, and they'd send you a pamphlet filled with McGruff's crime prevention tips. And millions of these pamphlets were sent out, filled with all kinds of ideas for how neighbors could help keep each other safe. And then, of course— came the McGruff houses. Now, to be a McGruff house, you had to have a background check and you had to get a little bit of training so you knew how to be an emotional support to a kid in trouble. And also so you'd know who to call. And once you had the background check and the training, then they'd give you one of those signs. One of those signs, like the sign that Officer Leesburg showed us. One of those McGruff house signs. And you could put it up in your window and kids would know that your house was a safe house. And then it wasn't just McGruff Houses. A utility company in Utah wondered if maybe each of its trucks could be designated as a kind of rolling McGruff house. And before long, 170 different companies across the nation hosted fleets of McGruff trucks. Well, that's when I was a kid, the era of the McGruff House. When I could look around my neighborhood and know that there was help when I needed it, it was a really, really great way to see my neighbors as sources of help. Even though I gotta say, blessedly, I was never in the kind of trouble that would make me knock on the door of a McGruff house, though a lot of kids were. That era is past, there are no more McGruff houses. In the end, it was cell phones, by the way, that changed everything. It's easier than ever to call for help when you need it now. So, McGruff houses, well, they weren't needed in quite the same way as they were once needed. The truth is, though, even today, when I visit my childhood neighborhood, which I do from time to time, I can sometimes remember which houses were the McGruff houses. Those are part of the good childhood memories I carry around with me. And while McGruff houses might be obsolete, neighbors aren't. Family isn't. And in a world in which troubles haven't gone away, we can still use a little of our personal energy to reach out and take care of each other. Can't we?
1: The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family right when you need
0: it on the Appleseed.
2: Thanks for listening to that entry in the Radio Family Journal about a time when I was a kid and when kids like me felt like they had a particular kind of access to a particular kind of help when they might need it. It was brought to mind, perhaps unusually, by Pippa White's story about Eva's family, who had a particular kind of access to a particular kind of help in the skepticism of Eva's mother aboard the Titanic, a skepticism that kept her awake at night and, in the end, saved Eva's life. I've been chatting about it here with uh, Brian Tanner and Heather Bigley, our producers. Guys, thanks so much for joining me.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: In a moment, another story performed by some actor friends and recorded live in the Appleseed Studio for our terrific studio audience. It's a fictional story written during World War I about miraculous wartime help on the battlefield. And in an England that needed all the courage it could muster in the face of a ferocious enemy, the story took on a life of its own. We'll explain. That's coming up. I'm Sam Bain. This episode of The Appleseed is filled with stories about help coming in unusual ways. From an unusual sort of premonition of disaster in Pippa White's Titanic story, to the help that comes from neighbors and friends to keep a neighborhood safe from crime, as advocated for by McGruff the Crime Dog. And up next, a story that goes all the way back to World War I. It's a story called The Bowman, like, you know, a bunch of guys shooting bows. And to hear it, we're gonna head back into the Appleseed Performance Studio, along with our terrific studio audience and also some actor friends, Noah Kershisnik, Darcy Ramirez, Freya Jorgensen, and Parley Lambert. Our actor friends will introduce the story, but I wanna say something by way of introduction too. Our terrific studio audience joins us for nearly every episode of the Appleseed. You can hear how much they love the stories But for this piece, we put our audience to work. They got in on the act, providing battle cries and fighting sounds and even the sounds of arrows leaving their bows. We had a blast. We hope you will, too. Let's join our friends in the performance studio, shall we?
0: In a moment our live performance version of a story called The Bowman. The story was written in the autumn of 1914,
5: just as World War I was beginning, by a writer of horror stories named Arthur Machen.
4: But The Bowman isn't a horror story.
0: Except that it's about the horrors of war.
4: It was written in the wake of the Battle of Mons, the first battle fought on the western front of World War I by the British. Arthur Mocken heard about the battle along with everyone else, and wrote a made-up story about how the tiny British army might have held its ground for so long, outnumbered and outgunned as they were. It's a story about angelic helpers who come to the aid of the British soldiers, and the story was published in a newspaper, The Evening News. It was part of the first wave of stories about the war, and when people read it, they assumed it was true. In fact, over and over, Arthur Machen was asked if he would publish the story again, this time with the sources for the miraculous things he wrote about.
0: But Machen insisted that the story was simply made up. It was inspired, he said, by thoughts of the British army in the middle of the battle, a battle that he called a furnace of torment and death and agony and terror, seven times heated. In his imagination, he saw those soldiers consumed by the flame of war, but also made glorious by their courage in the face of it. He imagined them as a company shining with a kind of holy light, and with those thoughts in his head, he began to write stories. The Bowman is just one of them.
5: But the story, which, again, is about angelic help coming to the aid of the outnumbered British army in the Battle of Mons, got bigger than Machin ever dreamed. It became a beacon from which the British public drew hope and courage, a thought behind which they rallied, the idea that angelic helpers came and fought for the brave British boys at the front. Soon, stories of all sorts of heavenly helpers during the Battle of Mons could be heard in cottages and taverns and churches across England.
4: Some said a single, enormous angel had appeared, holding a giant sword to keep the enemy from advancing. Others talked about phantom cavalry riding about on the battlefield. And many spoke of a shining company of soldiers standing between the English army and their enemies. These stories were said to describe what people came to call the Angels of Mons.
0: Machen, the writer, claimed that the legends all sprang from his made-up war stories.
4: Others insisted the stories were true, and that stories like The Bowman were just made-up tales inspired by angelic help that really came.
0: And some even tried to
5: capitalize on the stories, including a guy who, as recently as 2001, said he had found an old film reel that would give cinematic proof of the angel legends. Some even said that the actor Marlon Brando was ready to pay 350,000 pounds for the old film reel. With that reel, people said Brando was going to make a Hollywood movie. The film reel turned out to not exist an imaginary invention to increase interest in the English town where it was purported to have been found.
0: To enjoy the Bowman, you should have bits of two other stories in your mind. One is the ancient story of the Battle of Agincourt, fought on October 25th, 1415.
4: St. Crispin's Day.
0: Hmm. Between the English army of King Henry V against the French. Agincourt
5: was just one famous battle in a series of conflicts over control of the English and French thrones. Those conflicts lasted a long time, and they were fought by armies of five generations of kings. Together, they're called the Hundred Years' War. Even though they lasted? a bit longer, 116 years. The English in the Battle of Agincourt were far outnumbered by the French, and the French had better armor. But the little English force won the day on the strength of its archers, each carrying an English long bow, six feet tall and able to shoot arrows that could penetrate armor.
4: Those archers made up 80% of Henry's small army. Shakespeare immortalized the Battle of Agincourt in his play Henry V. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Those are just a few of the most famous lines from the most famous speech of that famous play.
0: And from that time to this, those ancient archers of the Battle of Agincourt are in the minds of everyone who thinks on English heroes. That's one story. The other story is the story of Saint George. In ancient legend, Saint George saved villagers from a dragon that demanded human sacrifices. George slew the dragon and for his many brave deeds became a patron saint of England.
4: And Ethiopia too. And Georgia. And Catalonia. And Moscow. And Aragon.
0: And as the patron saint of England, Saint George is said to have come during battle to help and inspire English troops throughout history. In fact, Shakespeare's Henry, or Harry, as he's so often called, shouts to his soldiers to cry out,
4: God, God bear for Harry! England, England and St. George!
5: As they rush once more under the breach. One can imagine real-life soldiers calling out to St. George as a battle cry. They have done so since the days of medieval
0: battles. And now, armed with thoughts of the Battle of Agincourt and of St. George, here's The Bowman, adapted from the 1914 story by Arthur Machen.
4: I shall play Bill, an English soldier at the Battle of Mons who knows a little Latin and once ate at a little vegetarian restaurant in London. (laughs) I shall play a soldier we'll call Tom, also in the trenches of the battle.
0: And we We shall shall narrate. narrate.
4: The story begins like this.
0: It was on the most awful day of that awful time on the day when ruin and disaster came so near that their shadow fell even over London, far away, a time when the hearts of men failed within them and grew faint. And
5: on this dreadful day, then, when 300,000 enemy men in arms, all with their artillery, swelled like a flood against the little English company. There was one point above all other points in our battle line that was, for a time, in awful danger of utter annihilation.
0: All the morning, the enemy guns had thundered and shrieked against this tiny battlefield corner and against the thousand or so men that held it. The men joked at the shells and found funny names for them.
4: <laughs> nice try, wife's mum. Why wife's mum? Because like my wife's mum, you can hear it coming from miles away. <laughs> <laughs> and like my wife's mum, this is an overstated welcome. Here she comes again. The soldiers
0: made bets about those shells and greeted them with scraps of music hall songs. If
4: you were the only shell in the world, and I had the only gun. Little, little, blast you back to blighty. Blighty, blighty is the, the place, place for thee. But the shells
5: came on, and burst and tore brother from brother. There was no help, it seemed. The English artillery was good, but there was not nearly enough of it. It was being
0: steadily battered into scrap iron. There comes a moment in a storm at sea when people say to one another, it is at its worst, it can blow no harder. And then there is a blast ten times more fierce than any before it. So it was in these British trenches.
5: There were no stouter hearts in the whole world than the hearts of these men. But even they were appalled as the enemy cannonade fell upon them and overwhelmed them and destroyed them. And at this very moment they saw from their trenches
0: that a tremendous host was moving against their lines. Only five hundred of their thousand remained, and as far as they could see, the enemy infantry in its thousands was pressing on against them, column upon column, a grey world of men. (laughs) There was no hope at all. They shook hands, some of them.
5: One man improvised a new version of a popular battle song. You know the one.
4: Goodbye, Piccadilly. Farewell, Leicester Square. It's a long, long way to Tipperary. But my heart's right there. Only this
5: soldier's version, instead of ending with, but my heart's right there, ended with the melancholy
0: words,
4: And we shan't get there.
0: And they all went on, firing steadily. The few machine guns did their best, but everybody knew it was of no use. The enemy came on and on and on, and they swarmed and stirred and advanced from beyond and beyond.
3: World
4: without end. Amen.
5: Said one of the British soldiers with some irrelevance as he took aim and
0: fired. His name was Bill that soldier's name was, he was quoting the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, though Bill himself may not have known so.
5: And in the moment that he did, he remembered, he says he cannot think why or wherefore, a strange little vegetarian restaurant in London where he had once or twice eaten eccentric dishes
0: of cutlets made of lentils and nuts that pretended to be steak. On all the plates in this restaurant, there was printed a figure of St. George in blue with the motto, Adsit sit Anglais Sanctus Georgius. May St. George be a present help to the English. Bill the
5: soldier happened to know Latin, and now, as he fired at his man in the grey advancing mass, three hundred yards away, he uttered that pious
0: vegetarian motto.
4: Adsit, anglis sanctus georgius. May St. George be a present help to the English.
0: And in the moment he uttered that invocation, he felt something between a shudder and an electric shock pass through his body. The roar of the
5: battle died down in his ears to a gentle murmur. Instead of it, he says, he heard a great voice and a shout louder than a thunder peal, crying. Uh Uh Hooray! 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 His heart within him grew suddenly hot as a burning coal, and then, just as suddenly, went cold as ice. It seemed to him that a tumult of voices answered to his summons. He heard, or seemed to hear, thousands shouting.
3: Oh! St. George!
5: St. George! Ha, sir! Ha! Sweet St. Grant us good deliverance! St. George! St. George, help us! Ah, St. George! Ah, St. George! A long bow and a strong
0: bow! Heavens nigh, aid us! And as the soldier heard these voices, he saw before him, beyond the trench, a long line of shapes with a shining about them, they were like men who drew the bow, and with another shout their cloud of arrows flew singing and tingling through the air toward the enemy hosts. The other men in the
5: trench, though they had no hope, were firing all the while, and suddenly one of them lifted up his voice in the plainest English.
4: Heaven help us.
5: He bellowed to the man next to him.
4: But oh, we're me marvels. Look at the enemy hosts. Look at them. Do you see them? They're not going down in dozens nor in hundreds. It's thousands, it is. Look, look, there's a regiment gone, just as I've been talking to you. Shut it!
0: The other soldier bellowed back.
4: what are you gassing about? But he gulped with
5: astonishment even as he spoke, for, indeed, the grey men were falling by the thousands.
0: The English could hear them as line after line crashed to the earth. All the while, Bill, who had called out for St. George to be a present help to the English, heard the cry. (laughs) Singing arrows darkened the air. The enemy horde melted from before them. In fact, before the end, there were 10,000 fallen enemy soldiers before the feet of the English army. It was even decided by the great general staff of the enemy that
5: the contemptible English must have employed shells containing an unknown gas of a poisonous nature, as no wounds were discernible on the bodies of the fallen enemy soldiers. But
0: Bill the man who knew what lentils tasted like when they called themselves cutlets, and who knew a little Latin, and who had called out in the direst moment.
4: Ad sit anglis sanctus georgius.
0: Knew also that St. George had come at his beckoning, and had brought his Agincourt bowmen to help the English. The
5: Bowmen, adapted from a 1914 story by Arthur Mocken.
2: fun to spend that time with our actor friends and our terrific studio audience pressed into service for wartime sound effects. You know, stories of mysterious and inexorable help continue to strengthen hearts in wartime. The Bowman, that story, was introduced to me by my wife, Suzanne, a frequent contributor to the show, and she introduced me to another story, too, a modern story of mysterious and heartening help during wartime. It's a story from the time in which we're living now, the story of the Ghost of Kyiv. The Ghost of Kyiv was the nickname for a mysterious, unidentified, and legendary pilot of a MiG-29 Fulcrum fighter jet in the skies above Ukraine. The Ghost was credited with single-handedly shooting down 10 Russian aircraft in the opening days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, six of those aircraft in the first 30 hours of the invasion. News of the Ghost of Kyiv first began to circulate among Ukrainian social media users in the early days of the invasion. But before long, reports of the exploits of the Ghost of Kyiv along with confirmation that the ghost is alive, well, and still flying, came from more official channels, including the Security Service of Ukraine and the Times of London, publications like that. And the Ukrainian Armed Forces Facebook page contains a post displaying a photo that claims to be the mysterious pilot. The pilot's face is covered by the visor of a helmet over the caption, Hello, occupiers. I'm coming for your soul. Finally, in May of 2022, Ukrainian officials dropped the actual news. The ghost of Kyiv was, they said, a superhero story whose character was created by Ukrainians. That's their words. A superhero story whose character was created by Ukrainians. He didn't exist at all, even as his story was bolstered the spirits and courage and resolve of Ukrainians in the face of terrible wartime difficulties. And in that way, the Ghost of Kiev is just like the angelic Agincourt bowman in Machen's World War I Angels of Mons stories that you heard a moment ago. And there's another way in which those stories are alike too. According to the Ukrainian Air Force, in the first days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Dozens of retired military pilots, from captains to generals, came back to the armed forces and took to the skies again in defense of their country. Like Machen's Agincourt bowmen, warriors from the past coming to the aid of their countrymen in the present. And that's a true story. I want to thank you for listening to The Appleseed. You hear us say in nearly every episode that we hope the stories we bring you spark memories and thoughts that you can share as stories with the ones you love. And it's one of our favorite things that you reach out to us with stories of your own. It's easy to do that. Just reach out to us by email at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. We really love to hear from you. A couple of long-time listeners, Peggy and Lee Collins, heard the story about me and my brother and our encounter with a ghost dog in an episode of The Appleseed just a few weeks ago. And that was a made-up story that featured some of the real people in places from my very young childhood. It was fun for me to present it on the show, and it sparked a ghost memory for Peggy and Lee— They both remember growing up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and hearing the legend of the ghost of Emo in the Salt Lake City Cemetery. There are tons of versions of the Emo legend, and we found them as we did a little digging on the internet. Some say you walk backwards around a certain mausoleum in that cemetery three times at night, chanting Emo, 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 and then you shine your flashlight through the little window in the mausoleum, and you'll see glowing red eyes in there. Lee Collins remembers walking from his house past the cemetery to get to the church where the neighborhood kids would gather on Friday nights to watch movies for a quarter. And Lee told us that one Friday night, none of his friends could go to the movie, so Lee talked his mom into walking with him. And at the last minute, right as mom was putting on her coat and gloves, Lee decided he didn't want to go. He had a bad feeling about it. And when he told his mom, it turns out, that she was relieved beyond belief. She was unable to contain her relief. As it turns out, she was as nervous about going out into the dark and past the cemetery as Lee was. A moment of common ground between a mother and son surrounding an old urban legend about emo. Lee remembers the legend, Lee's mother knew the legend, Lee's wife Peggy knew it, and chances are, kids in the area are still telling it that's how stories like this go right we're grateful to lee and peggy for sharing that story with us and we welcome you to share yours again reach out to us at theappleseed at byu.edu we love to hear from you Join us again on the Appleseed, won't you? You can find us at byuradio.org Appleseed by Googling the Appleseed podcast or by downloading the BYU Radio app for ways to listen to all the great shows produced by BYU Radio. And if you found us on the podcast, rate us and review us. It helps people find the show. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world.